All right, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Open your Bible, navigate on your electronic device if you'd rather. We're going to look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 14 this morning. The topic, the inhabitants of earth hate and want to kill God's two witnesses, but are themselves killed if they try. The title of our message, we are two reviled and deadly guys. Why do I do it? Anyway, Father, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much for this special Sunday, Lord. I'm glad I can share it with uh, members of the Calvary family. We rejoice in what you have done. You get the glory, Lord. There's not a one of us that can take any, uh, any, anything for it, Lord. We didn't even realize you had done it. That's how dumb we are. And so we just thank you for that. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that, as always, your spirit would teach us. And though we want to learn things, Lord, and, and, and know what this text is about in its context and all, we also want to know that we've been in the presence of the living God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. On September 23rd, 1999, NASA's Mars Climate Orbiter crashed into the red planet. After an investigation, it was determined that a piece of software had calculated the force of the thrusters in imperial measurement instead of meters, metric. In 2001, the Los Angeles Zoo lent Clarence, a 75-year-old Galapagos turtle, uh, tortoise rather, to Moore Park College. The school would need to build an enclosure, and so they asked how big Clarence was. The zoo told folks at Moore Park that Clarence weighed 250. They assumed Clarence weighed 250 pounds, Clarence weighed 250 kilograms, or roughly 550 pounds. He escaped his shelter, but happily, after a short chase, he was captured. <laughs> the United States is the last nation to use imperial units. The solution is obvious. The rest of the world should switch. Well, America, right? John is called upon to take measurements. Uh, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Measuring the temple is straightforward enough. Measuring those who worship there adds an illustrative element. As we work through the text, we'll do a little measuring of our own. I'll organize my comments around these two points. Number one, God the Holy Spirit is your measure. And number two, God the Holy Spirit is yours without measure. Let's take a look at God, the Holy Spirit, being your measure in verses 1 and 2. God, the Holy Spirit, is in verse 4, even though he's not mentioned. You read this, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Those words come directly from the fourth chapter of the book of Zechariah. The prophet saw, and I quote, a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps, Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Lampstands with a constant supply of oil illustrate the unlimited resource of God the Holy Spirit available to the Jews who had returned from captivity in Babylon to rebuild their temple. Zechariah would be told, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's kind of the heart of that chapter. Everything else is about that principle 
And so we see that the Holy Spirit is behind the scenes in a very strong way. Knowing that John was alluding to Zechariah and Zechariah was talking about the Holy Spirit, we can see him at work in our text as well. And so verse one, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. Our first century system, or excuse me, one of the first century systems of measure apparently was the reed. And so the reed was given to John and it would be about 10 feet long by our way of measuring. Daniel and Jesus confirm that there will be a temple in the great tribulation. They both refer to a particular event that occurs in the inner chamber of the temple called the Holy of Holies. The man we popularly call the Antichrist will enter it and defile it when he proclaims himself God and demands to be worshiped. His actions are ominously described as the abomination of desolation. As you know, a Muslim temple, Dome of the Rock, is on the site of the Holy of Holies right now, or is it? Not necessarily. In 1969, there was construction work in the vicinity of the Dome of the Rock. Dr. Zev Yevin went to the site and made some drawings of an exposed ancient wall. Not long after, Dr. Asher Kaufman identified the section of wall seen by Dr. Yevin as the eastern wall of the temple court of the women. Kaufman concluded that the site of the temple is not where we suppose. The Dome of the Rock is not on the site of the Holy of Holies. Other sites have been proposed based on more recent research and technology, such as ground-penetrating radar and drone uh, flyovers. But the bottom line is that both structures could coexist on the Temple Mount. Remember, too, that the Jewish temple consists of two small chambers called the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. Now, we think of the temple as the magnificent Herod's temple with all of its walls and colonnades and rooms and all that, but the temple, the tabernacle from the wilderness that became the temple, it was only 675 square feet inside of a tent. And so they could throw a tent up very quickly and have a makeshift temple. And the Temple Institute in Jerusalem has been manufacturing all the implements needed to begin sacrifices, and they've trained a priesthood. And so they're ready to go, and uh, that, that could happen overnight. Now, the measuring here includes an altar. This would be the brazen altar upon which animal sacrifice will occur, and so we know that there will be animal sacrifice during a portion of the Great Tribulation. Merely bringing a sacrifice does not indicate that someone is a believer. They may be going through the motions, performing empty rituals. Thus, John was told to measure those who worship there. The, the temple is recreated in, in whatever detail is necessary and, and its measurements are accurate. But how about the worshipers? Are they genuine? Jesus would go on in his talk in Matthew 24 and 25 to talk about the sheep and the goats. Sheep are true believers. Goats are those who thought they believed in the Lord, but he said, I never knew you. And so John is taking this measurement. This measuring of temple, altar, and worshipers leaves no doubt that there will be a temple in Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation. To us, that information is interesting and prophetically exciting. To Jews, it is awesome and life-changing. John wrote after the Romans destroyed the temple. It was in ruin and they were dispersed. The hope of a return to Israel and worshiping in Jerusalem, that's huge. Verse two, but leave out the court which is outside of the temple 
and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Given to the Gentiles indicates a time of cooperation between Jews and Gentiles, but we see it will be short-lived. For a period of 42 months, Jerusalem will fall into Gentile control, and Jews will be a target of persecution. 42 months is three and a half years, and it is 1,260 days. The Great Tribulation lasts for seven years, separated into a first half and a second half by the abomination of desolation that occurs at the midpoint. Jesus, in Matthew 24, which some call the little apocalypse because it is a summary of the larger work that we read in the Revelation, he said this, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be. The opening of the first five seals occurs slowly in the first half of the Great Tribulation. The opening of the sixth seal is a preview of things to come in the second half of the Great Tribulation. The opening of the seventh seal releases the seven trumpets and the seven bowls coming at an accelerated pace in the second half of the Great Tribulation. Jesus compared the whole process beginning to end to a woman in labor. As uh, typically the pains would start uh, small and with lots of time between them, getting uh, more and more rapid and more and more intense until the time of delivery. Now, we have the word of God as our measure for life and godliness. That's not news to any of us. We also have indwelling us God the Holy Spirit to use God's word to measure our beliefs and behaviors. Thanks to the word of God, we know what to think and do, and we know what not to think or do. But sometimes maybe we're like Paul the Apostle, we say the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. But then Paul went on, and what did he say in Romans chapter 8? He had the Spirit of God. And thanks to God the Holy Spirit, we can think and do what we ought to. We can measure some things by verses. A common need for measuring is when we're presented with behavior that strikes us as questionable. It's always a big topic among Christians. Can a Christian do this? Can a Christian do that? I don't want to bring anything up. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, I don't want to put a burden on anybody. But there are areas of so-called liberty. Uh, they're not really spoken against in the Bible. They're, they're just, you know, can you do them or not? Well, we can measure things like that by verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 23, which says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify or build up. And so if, if I'm contemplating something, uh, you know, that maybe I've given up and want to bring back into my life or something that Christians are doing that seems a little edgy or whatever, one thing I can do is, is ask the Holy Spirit to help me figure out if it is something that's going to be helpful and that's going to build me up. And if I'm really just wanting to focus on my walk with the Lord and needing all the help I can get and to be built up, then I might say, yeah, I'm going to pass on that. You guys go ahead. That's fine. If you have the liberty to do it, I won't judge you. Uh, but I, you know, for me, this isn't the way I want to go. And so we can measure ourselves always with the idea that God's word is his enabling. 
God's word is his enabling. That means whatever God tells you you can do, you can do. A lot of times they think, well, I can't do that. I'm not mature enough or I, 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 you know, I tried that or whatever. The Holy Spirit, God wouldn't ask you to do something or tell you to do something that he didn't empower you to do. He's not like that. You don't take your children who can't walk and just, you know, throw them somewhere and say, hey, fend for yourself, you know. You should be able to walk by now. I mean, you, you treat them at an appropriate age. And the Lord does the same with you. And so we can do what the Lord has called us to do. And so our measurement is always not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit. That's our standard. Uh, and so we, we appeal to the Word and to the Spirit and are measured by that. Now, the rest of the chapter goes on, or the, the verses, rather, that we've read are, are God the Holy Spirit is yours without measure. Jesus, of course, the main actor throughout this great drama. There are multiple supporting roles. It's an ensemble cast. And here we are introduced to these two witnesses. Verse 3 and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Jehovah will empower two prophets as special witnesses. These are the true and unique Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? And they are. So next time they come to the door, you can say, yeah, I've, I read about the Jehovah's Witnesses in the Bible. They're in the book of the Revelation, chapter 11. Sackcloth was a kind of uniform for Old Testament prophets of woe. It's hard to find. I wanted to, you know, we have pretty, really cool shirts for our usher crew. They're automotive shirts, in case you hadn't figured it out. But uh, they're, they're, you know, designated. We have teams because they have usher competitions behind the scenes. But <laughs> you weren't here when the red team attacked the blue team a few weeks ago. But anyway, water balloons and spit wads. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it's hard to find. If I could... I know it's going to happen now. Some of you ladies who are seamstresses, you're going to make some sackcloth shirts for the... I'll wear it. You make me a sackcloth shirt, I'll wear it if you can figure that out. Not just a sack, but something that's, you know, maybe have a few flowers on it and stuff. But anyway, it's uncomfortable. The idea is that it's, it's noticeable and it's uncomfortable to the wearer. And so it, it, it's like any other costume. It gets you ready for the message and the message is going to be repent or else. Uncomfortable circumstances are often necessary for the gospel to be brought into focus in our lives. Truth is, uh, most of us are uncomfortable in some way most of our lives. Not as bad as others and, and all of that, but uh, just being human is uncomfortable. You find, especially as you get older, you know, they say age is something that's in the mind. <laughs> no, no, no. It's in the joints. It's in the arch of your feet. It's in not being able to lose as much weight. It's in your hair, if you have any. Uh, it's, it's not just a, the part of it that's in your mind is a dementia uh, and stuff. So I don't know what those people are talking about. It's pretty clear that these guys prophesy in at least part of the second half of the Great Tribulation. It's hard to see that they go right to the very end. They may start sometime in the first half and go for 1,260 days. Same number of days as either half doesn't mean that, that they have to be restricted to either half. It just means that those are the number of their days and, and it could overlap. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. More Zechariah here. The Jews had stalled in the rebuilding of their temple. God promised to provide his Holy Spirit to provide their two leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. 
He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. The connecting of the lamps to the trees is intended to depict a constant, spontaneous, automatic supply of oil to the lamp, as I said earlier. Their ministry looked forward to and was a figure of the ministry of the two witnesses of the revelation. Their light is the prophecy they share, and it will be empowered without measure by God, the Holy Spirit. As we'll see, for three and a half years, these guys go wherever they want and say what God tells them to say in a way that cannot be stopped. Because in verse five, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Fire is a favorite superhero power, Human Torch, Ghost Rider, Phoenix, and of course, Drew Barrymore. Firestarter, remember that terrifying movie. There is that scene in every superhero movie where the police or the military shoot the super bad guy with nukes only to have their bullets bounce off. He then kills them in the most horrific manner possible. The two witnesses originated that genre. That's where it comes from. They give an entirely new meaning to being on fire for the Lord. I had to, come on. You know, I have to, there's some things pastors have to say, you know, because they're, they're just ingrained. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So they're from central California. And they have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Right here would be an excellent verse to launch into the question, who are those guys? We are not told who they are. We cannot know who they are. It's telling of our curiosity that right after commentators admit the identity of the two witnesses that cannot be known, then they dedicate most of their commentary deciding who they really are. Let's do that. No, I'm just going to tell you the theories. The casting call includes the following. On account of the miracles performed, they seem like Elijah and Moses. Another point in the Moses column is that Elijah and Moses met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to discuss the end times. And a point in the Elijah column is that Jesus said that, or the Bible seems to indicate Elijah would come before the end, although there's things that you can talk about there. A lot of folks believe that the Old Testament patriarch Enoch, not Moses, will join Elijah. God took Enoch and Elijah to heaven without ever dying. They are unique in that. The ancient church, including Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Hippolytus, was consistent in identifying the two witnesses as Enoch and Elijah. Tiny minority of scholars say they are Zerubbabel and Joshua, based on a super literal reading of Zechariah, who says they are the two olive trees. They could be two ordinary believers that God anoints. I like this more and more because it is just like the Lord to raise up nobodies. Personally, I like not knowing. Uh, I think, you know, maybe it's taken me all these years, you know, to, to get over it. But if the Bible says you can't know something or doesn't tell you something, you know what? Can't know it and you won't find it. And so this is fun discussion, you know, while you're uh, doing, you know, camping or something like that. But uh, don't want to spend too much time on it. It's better to stay a whosoever than to make a name for yourself anyway. Become a, a yousoever. You know, people we want to bring glory to ourselves. These guys, whoever they are, they remain anonymous to us. Verse seven, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Some ministries have a very definite, even abrupt ending. 
And the ending can seem like it is a defeat. Some of you have been involved in church long enough to know that ministries come and go. Oh, well, let me take that back. Ministries should come and go, some ministries. Unfortunately, a lot of ministries just come and stay. And then they have to be propped up and revived. And, you know, you, you, you have to beg people to work in them because nobody is volunteering anymore. At one point, they were vibrant and you had to turn people away. But now you're begging people or you're putting pressure on people. You're making people feel bad. What did you do for Jesus this week? Right now, these people are, you know, whatever. Some ministries just have to die. They're, they're just, God brings them for a while and then they're gone. And I think part of the reason he does that is so that we will learn more and more how to hear the voice of the Spirit and be willing to, uh, you know, acknowledge that. The story I told earlier about the church and uh, the, the point at which we had to decide we weren't going to go for it and try and build the building that they were suggesting. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments where you think, hey, uh, this, this kills this idea. It's dead in the water. Uh, you know, and you're just kind of left wondering. But it, it was a good thing. It's a great thing, as a matter of fact. And so sometimes ministries just, uh, they end. The beast is mentioned for the first time. Critics of the literal futurist approach to the revelation might ask you this trick question. How many times is the Antichrist mentioned in the revelation? The answer is zero, none. At least that name. However, this same person is called the beast 36 times. He has a bunch of names in the Bible. He's called the man of sin, the man of destruction, the little horn, the Assyrian, many, many other names. Make war against them, overcome them, and kill them describes an extended campaign. We can only wonder how many special operatives or squads or units or whole armies are incinerated. The two witnesses will be indestructible until their ministry ends. The two witnesses had the Holy Spirit without measure, obviously. They were indestructible and performed amazing acts. Having the Spirit without measure did not save them from martyrdom in God's plan. Having the Holy Spirit without measure doesn't mean you and I will do the miraculous or that we will be spared suffering. In fact, in the church age, most of the time it means we will be empowered in our suffering, that we will glory in our suffering so that the uh, attention goes to God, that we will be fools for Christ's sake and thought of that way. And so just because you have the spirit without measure, it doesn't mean you're going to be opening your mouth and, and flaming people. I mean, that's easy, right? I mean, you're driving down, somebody cuts you off. <sighs> How was traffic? Pretty easy. It's harder to keep control of yourself Everybody becomes like Goofy in those, you know, the, those cartoon uh, driving videos where he becomes crazy when he gets in the car. Obviously, you don't know what I'm talking about because when I took uh, driver's training, it was still in a Model A Ford. I had to crank, you know. Actually, when I took driver's training, it was a Chrysler Imperial that was 85 feet long. Uh, you know those, and, and the first thing I did was back into another car. Uh, bad start. Uh, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Not lying in state to honor them, but lying in street, lying in shame. Jerusalem is the city where our Lord was crucified. If words mean anything at all, this is literal, not symbolic. 
Jerusalem is likened to Sodom and Gomorrah due to its spiritual condition in the Great Tribulation. It will be a place where people are held captive by the unbridled immorality of their flesh. Then those from the people's, verse 9, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. How could people, tribes, tongues, and nations simultaneously for three and a half days see these two witnesses? Well, the answer is they couldn't for most of human history, not until almost the mid-1960s. John predicted the advance of instantaneous global telecommunication technology. John was a prophet accurately predicting the future of mankind. This book is a prophecy, not an apocalyptic allegory. When, When it says here they will see them, they will see them. They would not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves means they didn't intend to bury them at all. They were going to keep them on display. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. We've all seen footage of protesters dancing in the streets, burning effigies and shouting death, usually to the U.S., death to the United States, mostly because we use imperial units instead of metric units. What would be an inappropriate or an appropriate gift rather? How will they celebrate? Will Hallmark have time to produce cards? It's sick, indicative of the values of the inhabitants of the earth at that time. The good news of salvation is not a torment. It's the greatest news anyone can give you. You can have your sins forgiven, be a new creation, live forever in a blissful eternity with a glorified body. To quote John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, Tell me more, tell me more. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. (laughs) That's a fantastic line. Can you imagine being in the queue, shuffling past the bodies when suddenly they're raised from the dead in a glorified body? I'm I'm sure more than one heart attack is going to come on that day, at least some angina, right? This This is huge. Especially because what you remember about these guys is they kill everybody with fire. It's like yelling fire in a crowded building, you know, only uh, worse. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. These eternals in glorified bodies ascend to heaven similar to Jesus in his ascension. The inhabitants of earth don't have much time to reflect, however, because in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. These are precise numbers. They're not symbolic numbers. They don't mean a lot or anything like that. God required a tenth, a tithe from Israel. Once the damage is calculated and they realize it is a tithe exactly, the people will know that the earthquake was the hand of God. 7,000 people can be translated 7,000 names of men. In other words, men of renown, notable people. The likelihood is that world dignitaries are gathered together as representatives of their nations at this horrible anti-Christmas. They're going to be killed probably in the earthquake and maybe all in one location. Many in Jerusalem repent and turn to God. Robert Thomas writes, It comes here as an encouragement just before the last blast of the seventh trumpet falls. Since the inhabitants of Jerusalem will be mostly Jewish, this could very well be the future repentance of Israel that will accompany Jesus' second coming. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. 
The woe that is coming quickly is the blast of the seventh trumpet in the very next verse. There are three persons in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is a person. Never treat God the Holy Spirit as if he were something rather than someone. Now, it is biblical to ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's okay to call it a fresh filling or a pouring out upon us. The Bible uses those as illustrations of the result of yielding to him. We should never come away from them thinking that the Spirit is a commodity like the Force in Star Wars. It's not just something you can tap into and get a little bit more or a little bit more. He is a person, and you have a personal relationship with him. It might help to think of our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, in more romantic terms. I think you'll see what I mean in a minute. Listen to this stanza lifted from a love poem by American poet Sarah Teasdale. Oh, plunge me deep in love, put out my senses, leave me deaf and blind. She compared an all-consuming, passionate relationship to a deep plunge into depths of water that would overwhelm her senses of sight and sound. It isn't something she could tap into as if it was an ocean. It was someone to love in that all-consuming way. Asking for God the Holy Spirit, asking to be filled afresh, is a plunge into a person. It's not a request for resources. When I'm with my wife and she wants to relate and talk, notice I didn't use the other illustration, when I want to relate and talk, because I'm just eating bagels and watching TV. But when Pam wants to watch and relate to me and talk with me, I can pay full attention to her. I've done that once or twice. (laughs) Or I can pay no attention to her, which is sad. I'm usually somewhere in between, like most of us not-head husbands. And when I am, I don't experience her as much as I could. I'm not immersed with her. I, I haven't taken the plunge and just said, hey, let's, you know, let's talk or whatever it is. God the Holy Spirit is yours without measure. It means that he is a person that you can rely on, that can empower you, that can guide you, that can lead you. Everything that he did for Jesus when Jesus was on the earth for uh, 33 and a half years, he can do for you because Jesus was that person uh, who was a man inspired by and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what we're talking about this morning. He is always paying attention to you. Though you and I might be in a situation like I just described with my wife where, you know, I'm not paying as much attention, the Holy Spirit is the one in that relationship paying attention. And to the extent that you will immerse yourself in him, he will lead you, he will guide you, he will empower you. You just need to take the plunge, right?